If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. We are graced with two guests on today's podcast. Joan MacArthur Blair and Jeannie Cockell are joining me to talk about appreciative inquiry, a subject that they recently published a book about. The book is called Building Resilience with Appreciative Inquiry, a leadership journey through hope, despair, and forgiveness. And dear listeners, I hope you will forgive me. I realize that I call it inquiry and then inquiry. So, hey, I can't decide which it is. Now, (laughs) I will share that when I was discussing this topic with one of my podcast editors, she said, what in the world is appreciative inquiry? So, to say the least, appreciative inquiry is a topic we don't talk enough about. And I am sure that Jeannie and Joan are going to really help us understand and expand what we think of as appreciative inquiry. So let's get started. Hey, Joan, Jeannie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dolph. So I am so intrigued by the subtitle of your book. And so let let me read it. It is A Leadership Journey Through Hope, Despair, and Forgiveness. And I will share with you that I was especially struck by the concept of forgiveness especially the concept of forgiveness in the leadership journey. There are so many times that either I have done this or I've worked with somebody in an organization and they are having a really hard time letting go of this bad experience. And consequently, it's kind of shading their ability to be all that they can be as a leader. Um, So if we could maybe start with forgiveness, I'd love to, I'd just love to have that be our launch point. Well, it was a really interesting journey for us as we worked on, uh, with resilience around this idea of forgiveness, because we think it is a critical component of being resilient, and it is the hardest piece, I think, of resilience. Mm-hmm. And you just said it. You just talked about people in workplaces who don't have that ability to let go. Forgiveness is that thing that allows us 
to evolve into something new, to find our ability to move forward. And as because of that, it's such a critical part of resilience. And we write in the book about this idea that it's an act of will. You know, it really is a conscious act of will to forgive um, versus a practice that, and it is a struggle. We talk to, uh, to leaders about forgiveness all the time and their experiences, just like you mentioned, in organizations where people struggle with it. It is a difficult thing to decide to do. And people will say to us, you know, what if I can't forgive? And we say to them, forgive what you can um, and let, let your heart forgive what you're able to forgive, because even that lets you evolve. And it often doesn't require saying, please forgive me, but it requires inside of you to say, please forgive me, and to say, I forgive you. Again, it can be, it can be an actual statement, and more likely, it's a state of being. It's an ability to say to oneself, I forgive you, in order for us to continue on that incident or whatever it was that has upset us, I'm going to say, let it go, move on, I'm forgiving. Both you and me. Like Everybody is part of these <laughs> sorts of incidents in our leadership lives. So to be able to self-forgive and to forgive others. But as Joan says, it's a, it's really a difficult, it's, it requires commitment and will to move ahead. And it's about living it. So it's really about that internal feeling. And that's the practice that we call resilience, which is to continue to do that practice where inside of you, sometimes you slip and say, ooh, and you're still angry. And then you say, wait a minute now, I, I said I'm going to forgive, I'm going to move on, I'm going to let this go, even though that other thing has not changed but I'm changed, so I can see this differently. And it's the practice of seeing it differently that allows that forgiveness to carry on and be part of a huge piece of the resilience, the, the ability to be resilient, because that resilient is about carrying on <laughs> no matter what happens. And so this is where I'm such a task-oriented person. So I think I think so often we all would agree that forgiveness is good and we all would agree that, yeah, it, it's in our be own best interest to forgive people if we feel like we've been wronged. But how does somebody actually do that? Like, how do they actually forgive and let go? I think that, um, you know, we, we, we write about this idea that forgiveness is not absolution. It recognizes what has happened. And I think that that's the first thing that's useful sometimes to people. We, we confuse forgiveness with absolution. Forgiveness is that state of being where you're actually letting go of something and not holding it in your way anymore. And so I think that's the place to begin. What is it you can do that allows you to let go of something? So for some people, that might be very overt. For other people, that might, might be just beginning every morning to forgive again something that has happened. Because sometimes major things happen in leaders' lives and it takes a while. So to begin to define for yourself what forgiveness is. I think the, the second kind of tactical thing about forgiveness, and Jeannie mentioned this in what she just said, it doesn't have to involve other people. And I think this is one of the things that people find complicated, that it, this idea that I have to go to somebody and tell them I forgive them, or go to someone and ask their forgiveness. Forgiveness does not have to involve another person. 
And so that's the second thing. It makes it a little bit easier if you begin to work on yourself as a leader rather than suddenly engaging this huge audience or even another audience of one. And sometimes it's just a matter of saying, let's have a conversation and actually surfacing what we call sometimes the elephant in the room because it's not a good idea to hold it in either. It's sometimes a great idea to engage with others in terms of your own feelings and how it behaviors impacted you and so on and just have those like own that right each person in the conversation because if you get into blaming you could say something like when you did this i felt this so you can own it just to describe it they're very descriptive so there's lots of techniques around you know communication well with others to to do as well but i would agree i think we're both agreeing that most of it comes from the self, a practice of self and looking at the world and other people in a certain forgiving kind of way. Uh, and it's not a conversation we talk to leaders about about this, those that we work with and those we interviewed. And um, many said it's the most important thing there is to do and do it as quickly and ask for it as quickly when you know it's time for you to ask for it. So it's um, not a conversation that's in the usual public domain. I mean, we don't sort of sit around and talk about forgiveness. And the same thing with despair when we move to that. So it's kind of like we have created a space in uh, the work we do in this book and the workshop we and the reflective questions and various pieces that people can use because we're practical, like you, Dolph, we're, we're practical as well, that people can actually use and practice with because it is a practice. It's not something that comes easily. I'm so glad that you that you both have kind of said it's not like you have to go to that person and say, hey, I've worked on this and I've forgiven you because I think in so many cases that person's no longer in our lives. You know, so like if they were a team yeah. member, they're now a former yes. team member. Yeah. And so it's just awkward to go back to someone who you've not talked yeah. to in 18 months and say, oh, I forgive you now. Right. Yeah. And it's artificial. It seems it, kind of inauthentic in many ways. And sometimes forgiveness is starts with the smallest of things. I had this experience recently. I was working with a client and there were two people in the workplace who no longer spoke to each other. And we were setting up for the workshop one came into the room, then the other came into the room. When the second person came into the room, they looked around, and then they made a choice to go and sit with that person. They didn't make any big deal of it. They just went and sat beside of them, beside them, so that they would work with them through the day. I thought it was a very profound act of forgiveness. It simply said, I wish to be with you. And it was very simple in that way. Probably not all that simple to do, in the book, these are hard words, you know, mm -hmm. hope, despair, and forgiveness. And in the book, uh, we have this poem about forgiveness. Uh, most of the poetry that starts the chapters uh, is written by me. This one was written by me. And I think it helps with this conversation we're trying to have about mm -hmm. forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a blank slate. It does not offer absolution. It does not lighten the burden of past acts. Do not think it is easy nor is it kind. Rather, it recognizes the power of rising again from the ashes of fires we ourselves ignited, of dowsing the flamethrowers gripped by circumstance and evil. It is a letting go and a holding close. It abides in love and champions knowing, and it walks with a steely and willful force. Forgive me. That's really powerful. 
it's almost prayer-like. She's beautiful, and the poetry's beautiful. Um, <laughs> because I think that idea of forgiveness is really complicated. And uh, the purpose of that poem was to kind of hold that complication. And you use you used that word prayer-like. I think there is grace in forgiveness that is so extraordinary. Um, there is that both taking taking grace and giving grace um, in that uh, powerful sense of of um, of letting our our hearts kind of quiver with that feeling of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So help me understand. I think I do, but. Obviously, giving grace is when you forgive someone. What is taking grace? I think forgiving ourselves. You know, that uh, we don't get to lead for a lifetime. Your audiences can't see Jeannie and I, but we're not exactly young anymore. Uh, You don't get to lead for a lifetime without having made some mistakes. And I think the taking of grace is to allow yourself the grace Mm -hmm. to understand that if you lead and you lead well, there will be times you will be seeking forgiveness, whether you overtly ask for it or not. And that, I think, is that notion of taking grace for yourself, to allow yourself to forgive yourself for leadership things that you have done that you might do differently now as you grow older. And so when you say part of that leadership is you know, asking forgiveness, are you thinking also asking, like a leader asking a team or team member for forgiveness? It could be. One of the things I wanted to say, though, is that the link in our book that's really key is the appreciative inquiry. And sometimes forgiveness happens through a process. We come in with, you know, teams who clearly have described their environment as toxic. Well, there's an awful lot of forgiveness that needs to go on in that environment. So it may be something where leaders actually bring it forward. But by simply, and this is how we got into the notion of resilience, right, is that we, as we were doing appreciative inquiry for uh, strategic planning or team building or all sorts of different purposes for appreciative inquiry, which is basically inquire into what's already working. Mm -hmm. What are your strengths? How can you build on what's working in this team or in this organization or in yourself as a person? And how can you build on that? So applied to forgiveness, as we've been describing here, it could be really focusing on forgiving yourself first and appreciating in that moment, maybe you wouldn't do that again, but let's look at the strengths that happened during that experience. What strengths are you bringing? And as we work with teams that have described themselves as toxic and they really want to be a highly effective team, appreciative inquiry starts with, well, what is it you want to be? So you start with that topic, affirmative topic, being a highly effective team, and then you start to ask questions to each other, usually in pairs, telling stories of when this team has been highly effective already, no matter how small. And as people start sharing those stories, they start to see each other as sharing some common values and hopes and experiences that are actually wonderful because we tend to dwell on the bad stuff. So this experience of an appreciative inquiry shifts people to focus on what they're already doing well. And then together they, they form small groups to imagine further and create images and visions of the 
future and then they design the ways to get there and a lot of that then of course is about forgiveness not maybe using those words but because they've come together as Joan described that one person came and sat with the other person well Parisian inquiries very much pairs or small groups and large stream talking to one another so it's people all connecting sharing their own wisdom and their own ideas so of course they're forgiving even just engaging together in that way to really build themselves as a highly effective team. So really from a, a strengths-based perspective. Yes. You know, we said we were going to go from forgiveness to hope, and on the way, I think there's a stop at despair. Hopefully just a stop. Hopefully you don't stay there, right? <laughs> and and we, we talk about despair in exactly that way. You know, yeah. we talk about what we call the glancing blow of despair. You know, something happens, and you're over it, you know, as a leader by 4 o'clock in the afternoon and and uh, or the next morning. We call it that glancing blow of despair. Um, and we talked to one CEO one day, and she said, well, this totally describes every day of my life, this cycle between hope, despair, and forgiveness. Um, and then there's, like, larger despair that, you know, we describe as, you know, the train coming in the dead of the night. Um, and off that train is an unwelcome visitor, and they stay in your house making a mess until they're finished with you. And that larger kind of despair. And when we talk to leaders about despair, people find despair comes to them for so many reasons. You know, they're incredibly resilient in a circumstance, and then a much smaller circumstance happens, and suddenly they find themselves in despair. And we also write about a third kind of despair, what we call systemic despair, which really is that interaction between race, gender, power, and privilege in the workplace that causes people to experience inequity every day. And so they just live with kind of that low level of despair every day in the workplace. Um, and we're really interested in strengths in times of despair. Not so much the despair itself, but what is your smallest strength, your greatest strength, your sustaining strength in this time of despair? How can you amplify that? How can you nudge it forward even the tiniest bit? Because there's no simple cure for despair. It will re reside until it's finished with you. And so we talk about what is your strength? What might you do in this circumstance just to sustain? Not to get over the despair, but just to sustain here. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we do with this is our book on resilience, you know, and hope, despair, and forgiveness is really about the fact that there's no 12 steps we can tell you how to do this, one, two, three, four, or five steps or three steps or anything, because everyone approaches resilience in a different way. Everybody, has, as we're talking about despair, some people seem to just fly through it and others get stuck. So there's different ways that though we, by having conversations around it, and that's again what our leaders that we talked to found that nowhere do you talk as a leader about despair because that means you're not a strong leader if you have any sense of despair so that it's another conversation that we're trying to raise through reflective questions that people can talk about it to one another in a kind of safe way um, because by having those conversations then of course you can figure out how it is you get to forgiveness and then ultimately back to hope as being your predominant view of your day. Hope and a hopeful view, we call it. So, And we would wish for leaders that despair never visited them, but it does. It visits our life and oh, it and just for is. For all of us, it does, yeah. yeah. And I think you're right. There are, there are so many 
different types of despair that leaders may feel. Everything from those, as you as you call it, you know, the, the glancing despair, like, oh, something just happened and I feel terrible about it, to, you know, really something that, you know, maybe it's a broken relationship with your board or, you mm-hmm. know, a broken relationship with a, a specific team within your organization. And, uh, you know, one uh, leader we talked to, she said, you know, if your book does nothing else, it brings despair out into the open. Mm-hmm. This ability to actually say as a leader, you know, I'm actually not okay at this moment in time in my leadership work. And it doesn't mean that my leadership work is not worthy or diminished or that I'm not leading the organization. It simply means that I'm carrying this rock with me every day when I do that. And so that has been really interesting for us as we've worked mm-hmm. with leaders uh, around despair is this kind of opening the doors to being able to talk about despair in different kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. We have this experience where leaders come up to us uh, when we're doing presentations and say, you know, I need to talk to you about despair. Um, And so it just gives them a place to begin to have a conversation that really leaders weren't allowed to have before. Can you maybe share an example of one of those conversations when someone comes up? Many of them are are things we've already kind of touched on. You know, people want to talk about someone in their team Mm -hmm. or a relationship. And you just said this. A lot of people come and want to talk to us about relationships with their boards because that is a a complicated relationship, particularly uh, for CEOs. Or they have an idea, a vision, and they can't ignite it inside the organization. It's like the organization can't find its way to to the vision a leader has and that causes despair. But almost, I think, um, I don't want to say always, but a lot of the time it has to do with another individual inside mm-hmm. the workplace. It doesn't matter where the higher they are in the hierarchy, that one person who is causing circumstances to be hard. Um, and so a lot of people talk to us about that. And so that's probably then where that, circles back to forgiveness as well, because it's it's one specific person or two specific people in the workplace. So assuming we don't want to spend too much time in despair, how do we how do we move forward with hope? Well, in our, no, go ahead. In our, in our, we both want to talk about hope. <laughs> we, in our work, we really think that hope is the bedrock of resilience, the practice of hope and a hopeful view as a leader. And when we use the word hope, we don't mean that everything's going to turn out fine by Tuesday. But the practice of being able to see inside what is going on right now, that there's a possibility, possibility of hope, that there's a hopeful view to be had here. And of course, in our writing, we went to some of the the great people who have have the capacity to do this. Viktor Frankl, of course, during the Holocaust, his ability to find humanity within such dire circumstance. And so hope and a hopeful view is like polishing the stone of what we see, what we focus on, the kinds of questions we ask. And we think that hope and the practice of hope and a hopeful view is the very bedrock of resilience. And we give an example in our chapter on hope that comes from our private life, which is I didn't arrive home one day from successfully doing a pre inquiry facilitation for a group of people. Joan was waiting at home, and I didn't arrive. Turned out I'd, had, I'd been in a very serious car accident. I didn't even realize that until days later. And I woke up, though, and this is the practice of a hopeful view of what you see. I was 
crushed all over. My uh, lungs were crushed, so I was intubated, so I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. My whole body was broken, and I was internally bleeding. I was in a pretty bad state. But when I came to and I was aware, I was in a room that was very strange. Joan was beside me. My sister was at the end of the bed, and she traveled across the country to see me. And the medical people were all, you know, dancing around, helping me out. But all I could think of was I was alive. And I couldn't speak, but I could smile. And I could just pay attention to what was going on, be curious. And in my appreciative inquiry framework was really to say, well, what can I do? Well, I can smile. You know, and then I can ask questions. Uh, In my head, right? I can be curious and just be open to what might come from this. So... I think it's um, kind of an extreme example, but in many times, it's just as hard in a situation with somebody else that you're you're experiencing kind of a conflict or whatever. It's you get into despair, um, but it's the same kind of curiosity and what can I appreciate about this person who is driving me crazy? But is there something? Is I can I see? Can I inquire? And can I see? What strengths are they actually bringing beyond what I'm seeing, which is things that are annoying me? So that practice, a daily practice of a hopeful view through that appreciative lens, that curiosity and what are your strengths and what's going on that's working, what more can we do in our relationship? I mean, those are the practices that are really powerful to get you back to hope, that hopeful view. And I think so often... You know, while leaders may not hopefully never experience the type of a crushing car accident that you experienced, I think they they metaphorically experience things like that, whether, you know, you know, whether it's, you know, you feel like your career is just blown up. And I think any of us who've been in leadership, this includes me, we've all been at those points where we're like, oh, I think I just blew up my career. You yes, know? <laughs> very much so. I think we all have had those experiences. Exactly. But, you know, you know, so, you know, but so metaphorically, I think we all kind of have these really tragic accidents in our life. And they stay with us longer, I think, those ones. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it's this intersection between these three things. You know, we, we represent them as kind of three intersecting circles because we experience them together. You know, often our greatest stories of hope come from mm-hmm. a despairing experience, like Jeannie's mm-hmm. car accident. Often our greatest acts of forgiveness are born out of our our hope and a hopeful view, the ability to see some little possibility, to be curious. What will happen if I um, change how I am with another person? And so, so this notion that Jeannie just talked about, this idea of being curious, mm-hmm. I think is uh, so important to resilience. What do I see? What am I focusing on? What questions am I asking myself? Mm-hmm. What questions am I asking of other people um, is fundamental to resilience. And we, we uh, use the notion of, uh, as many appreciative inquiry practitioners do, use the notion of generative questions. Mm-hmm. So not questions that are going to kind of lead to just an end answer or yes, no, or an open-ended and looking for those possibilities, right? Helping people to see into the future or see the best of what might be, even though when you first ask it, they may not be seeing anything. So those gener- the use of generative questions, I think, is really, really an important part of moving through that state of despair and into hope. And I will say that Rob Acton, when he was on the podcast a year and a half, two years ago, 
talked a good little bit about generative questions and ways that he used it with his board and very effectively. Yes. And, and he gave yes. some, some generative questions examples. Do you maybe have some good examples of generative questions that help with the, the AI process? Well, I was going to say one of the things is, is when somebody comes and says, I, you know, this, I'm so frustrated by being in that department meeting. I just, I don't, I don't ever want to go to department meetings. So you might ask, well, tell me a little bit more about what really worked for you in that meeting. And so then just shifting that way of thinking of it. So, you know, tell me a little bit more about that. That's a generative question. It doesn't have a question mark at the end, but it still elicits some. I'm going to put my cynic hat on. What happens when the answer is nothing? I hated everything about the meeting. Nothing. The end of the meeting. That's all. I, that's the only good part. And then something like, what would you like to have happened? And then start to go into the future with that. So in, in the next meeting, what could you do and what, what could you contribute to the, making this a different kind of meeting? Again, another generative question. You had one too, John. Yeah, I wanted to give it a specific example. I had an opportunity to work with uh, uh, another leader for a while, and there was a fairly major crisis inside the organization. And so we had crisis meetings every morning at 7 Mm a.m., and she would start those crisis meetings by asking a powerful generative question. She would say, what have we done well to manage this crisis since yesterday? Mm. And all that did was open people's minds to be creative and to to begin to to move toward possibility. And so it's such a simple example of a generative question, um, and um, and it was easy to use. Hmm. It's not like you have to practice something big to use a generative question. Yeah. And a simple question to start a meeting off is, what are we grateful for today? You know, just let's just go around and it just shifts the energy of people into the room in, in terms of gratitude and appreciation before then you get into the more tough, you know, figuring out the problems that you have to solve together. So, right. But your mind, you know, it's the, all the research in positive psychology and neuroscience are telling us that our minds work way better when we feel positive and we experience more positive emotions than negative ones. And that helps us to think more broadly. And that's what we need in our leadership moments. I don't know why I suddenly remembered this, but I did. My, uh, my father, the last 15 years of his life, was just remarkably sick. He had a series of heart attacks. He survived cancer a couple of times. He was no longer able to work. He essentially retired, had to, was forced to retire when he did not want to. Um, and it was a really difficult experience for him. And I was an adult at this point. And he, he, one day I found out that he kept a little notebook that he carried with him and he called it his good thoughts notebook. And, you know, and so, so anything good that happened during the day, he would write it down in his good thoughts notebook. And, and like, and, and, and and it could even be small stuff. Like I found a penny on the sidewalk or, and let me say my dad dearly loved my mother. And I, I believe was probably faithful to her throughout their entire marriage. But like he might write in his, in his uh, good thoughts notebook, waitress at Waffle House flirted with me. And I just made him feel good that the waitress at the Waffle House <laughs> yeah. flirted with me. <laughs> but, so, but, but like that, that book was such a powerful source of strength for him when he, was, yes. when he was like, I'm not feeling it today. I just, I can't do this today. Mm-hmm. That's a really good story. What wow. an amazing story of the practice of resilience. Because mm-hmm. I choose to wow. see the penny on the sidewalk as value. I choose to see this interaction with another human being as both funny and wonderful. We can't predict 
you know, in Jeannie's story, she was very damaged in the car accident. We couldn't predict, actually, if she was going to live or die for a while. And, and yet she found hope in simply being alive. And I found hope in the fact that she had hope in being alive. Um, and so, so it is a, a wonderful story about your dad and uh, his uh, his good good thoughts diary. I love it. Yeah. And and how he came up with it or who suggested it, I do not know. But it was a game changer for him. It really was. It was a total game changer. So, Joan, I think you have a poem as well for hope. And your yeah. your poem for forgiveness was so beautiful that I got to ask you to read the one for hope. In the same way, you know, in some ways, this defines kind of how we write about hope in the, in the book. My beautiful friend, Hope, you point me toward the sun, you shelter me in the rain, you trumpet my successes and hold me in my sorrow, ever whispering, rise up, rise up. I just adore that. That's powerful and amazing. In uh, writing about despair, and when we work with leaders about despair, we ask this question of them. Do you know who in the workplace will put down their hand and help you rise up? Do you know how to reach down your hand and help someone else to rise up? Hmm. Um, and we say, ask the, that question, you know, not because a response will be, oh, yeah, Harry would do that for me. But to think about the ways we are as human beings. How is it could we could help someone else rise up in the workplace? Um, because a lot of, uh, for a lot of employees, you know, they were good employees last month, but this month they seem to be in trouble. And often that is happening because they're in despair. Hmm. It's not happening because they're willfully being a bad employee. It's happening because they're bringing this, you know, sack of rocks mm -hmm. with them every day when they come to work. And the endurance it takes just to carry that is enormous. Mm -hmm. And so to have people around them who can simply say to them, you know, you're having a tough time. I'll carry your load with you is extraordinary. That is probably a great place for us to jump off, um, in part because I think it will make most of our listeners realize they need to figure out how to buy your book. What I'd like to do is move forward to the off-the-map question. So to move from hope to the off-the-map question. So, you know, one of what I love about the off-the-map question is it gets it allows people that are listening to get to know you as individuals, although I, I feel like folks have had a great opportunity to do that today because you've shared so much about your own journeys in this world. But in your bios, you mentioned that you are both ocean swimmers. And so... Um, let me also own, I don't, I don't even know how to swim. So I'd love to know, what are your most memorable ocean swims and why? Greece. Mm. Joan was president of the college. The fundraising guy said, he's the swim coach. He said, let's do a fundraising swim. We were in Nova Scotia in Greece. And so we'd like the president to be part of that team. And then she convinced me to be part of the team. And there was 12 of us. And we went to Greece. We had to fundraise. We had to get support. And we, had, we made lots of money, actually, fundraising. People were so agog that we'd swim island to island in Greece over five days. 
And so it was pretty memorable because the weather turned out to be very choppy. It was beautiful, but very windy. So ferries were not even getting across from island to island. So we only did one island crossing out of the five crossings because those others weren't allowed. But we did the swim across the shore. Uh, One memorable moment for me was when Joan got so tossed in the ocean near the shore. Thank goodness she was coming back. Her goggles got lost. They flipped off. (laughs) I I think a a powerful, memorable moment for me swimming in the ocean, many moments are this moment, is there's a moment when you're far enough from shore that – you know, it's not going to be just simple getting back. Hmm. You know, you're not going to just stand up and walk out of the ocean. There's that moment where you realize that everything you've trained for is this moment, that you have to be with that sense of isolation, that sense of being alone in some very big water. And so for me, that is that resilience moment. Like, what do I do in that moment? And how is it I undertake to to be myself in that moment and not be afraid? Yeah, we love the we love the ocean. I always feel like it's a place that's home for me when I go in the ocean. I think both of those are also such great metaphors for leadership, and I, I can see why you all teach and and help people through the leadership journey. You know, sometimes we just find ourselves a little further out than we thought we'd be, or a little choppier yeah. water than we thought we'd be. And how do we find? How, how do we make it both memorable and joyous to make our way back? And keep the vision of the shore. The shore yes. Is there. Keep looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I have to say the off the map question was not so off the map, really. Oh, okay. No, it was a hopeful, hopeful view. <laughs> I love it. Well, Jeannie, Joan, thank you so much. It has just been wonderful. We're recording this on a Friday afternoon, and it's been wonderful spending some time with you on a Friday. And I am, I am so appreciative that you have been with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Dolph. Yeah, thank you, Dolph. It's been a great way to uh, to uh, launch into the weekend. And, and every time I get a chance to talk to people about resilience, I come away thinking new thoughts. So I want to say thank you to you for that. It's been uh, great spending some time with you. Well, thank you. And before I let you go, I have to make sure our listeners know how they can connect with you. So you can connect with Jeannie and Joan at cocklemacarthur-blair.com. That dash is a hyphen. So let me say it again, cocklemacarthur-blair.com. The website is for their consulting firm, and when you go there, here's the reason you should go, you can download the first section of their new book. So if you are like me and you prefer to read in paper and you don't want to order the Kindle, well, go ahead and order it from Amazon, read the first section. By the time it arrives tomorrow, you'll be ready to read section two in paper. So you can buy Building Resilience with Appreciative Inquiry at your favorite bookseller on Amazon as well, or from Barrett Kohler Publishers, which is also online. And we'll include links of that in our show notes. The final thing that I want folks to be aware of is that their book won a silver award at the Nautilus Awards. And if you want to go and check that out, it's nautilusbookawards.com. And while you're there, you can get other great titles in the area of human potential and growth as human beings. So if you're interested in learning more when you're done with this book, Nautilus Book Awards is a great place to go. Hey, Joan, Jeannie, thank you so much for being with us today. 
Thank you. Thank you, Dolph. So if you're developing a list of those things that are truly working in your organization, just keep the ideas flowing. Don't stop to write down the information from today's show because all there for you at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Now, one of the things that makes my own life so meaningful is the opportunity to connect with people and nonprofits all over the U.S., each of which is advancing a cause that helps lift us all up. I will share with listeners that right now, and I'm, I always, I'm always like, I'm explaining, not complaining. Right now, I am super busy. Um, I'm, I've got an interim executive director engagement that's going on out west. I'm helping a national organization with a strategic plan and doing some coaching and some other things. And so all that is to say that at this point, I'm not actually taking on any new clients and probably won't be until September or October. But if you've got a project that you think is going to start then, now would be a good time for us to have a conversation because typically my schedule fills up a couple months in advance. So if you're interested, now would be a great time for us to have a conversation. Now, if you enjoyed today's show, please do me a favor and hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're using. And if you're feeling super generous, Give us a rating while you're at it, and maybe even write a couple sentence review. That is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight that will help not just your nonprofit, but you thrive in a competitive environment.